talk about today is, is something related to, to some work that, that I do um, in, my, in my research with my students, which is on sequential decision making and really understanding how we can get AI to do the right things. I see some of my, my computer science colleagues in, in the audience. This is not a technical talk particularly, so you will get no gems of wisdom from me today. And unfortunately, I've left some of the interesting work that we've, we've been doing um, on, the, on, the, uh, on the drawing room floor. But what I wanted to do really was, I guess, at least identify some of the issues that people are talking about right now. Some of the challenges for those of us who are building, trying to build AI systems and really reflecting on, on what it means to do the right thing. And, and I'm hoping that we can have input from, from some of the people here. So without further ado, uh, doing the right thing and, and getting your AI to do the same. <coughs> topic. So we've been programming for more than 60 years. Ada Lovelace, notwithstanding, who was programming a long time before that. But, but who is programming? And actually, what we're programming has really, really changed. And that's forced us to change the way that we've been we uh, that we develop AI that we develop AI software or software in general. So if you if you read the press, AI is everywhere. AI is in your toothbrush, it's in your vacuum cleaner, it's in everything. And of course, it's become a, a marketing ploy for for a lot of consumer electronics and and other things. But indeed, it is it is the case that with the proliferation of sensors um, and with the the easy access to data. That, that AI technologies really are infiltrating a lot of things that, that we do from day to day, and, and from toasters to Teslas. And that should give us all pause. Uh, it gives me pause. What decisions are being made, and who, what's informing those decisions, who's making those decisions? And I, I firmly believe that all decisions, all decision makers, whether they're human or otherwise, should be accountable for their decisions and hold up to scrutiny by those who are affected by the outcomes of those decisions. Um, when we think, you know, some, some decisions are pretty innocuous, whether, whether your toaster, you know, goes to dark brown or not quite so dark brown, but other decisions are important. AI systems are now being used to, to filter through emails or filter through uh, um, CVs for applications to decide who gets loans and who doesn't get loans, who's a risk, who's to be flagged and who's not. And so, those types of decisions are really ones that, that, are, that are important and I think we really want to be able to build systems that, that are accountable and that can be scrutinized. And the problem that we see now is that sometimes they, they can't. So how do we ensure our AI will do the right thing? How do we ensure our AI will make good decisions? And, and what, what is doing the right thing? What does that mean? I mean, I, I don't, I'm not going to give you the answer. If you, if you read, uh, um, if you read in this area a little bit, you'll see all sorts of words thrown around. Fairness, <laughs> fair, equitable, moral, unbiased, rational, principled, transparent, accountable, explainable. And I bet, given the diversity of people in this audience, if I asked you each what, this word, what these words meant, you would, you would have very different interpretations of what they meant. Because the, what those things mean are, some, what, what fairness means to a philosopher is different from what fairness means to a statistician. And, and so even understanding what the language is for how we decide how to do the right thing is, is, is really important. And of course, there's a whole mirage of other uh, um, words that people use when they talk about what it means to do the right thing. <coughs> what I decided to do was sort of try to write a set of desiderata for decision makers. And again, drawing on some of the literature, and these are things that, that some of you uh, may have seen. So, so we want our decision-making systems to be fair. We want them to be unbiased. 
we want them to be transparent so that we can so that the decisions that are being made can be can be seen and, and respected by all of us. We want them to be human interpretable because as I'll allude to later on or as as we'll see a lot of things that are caught in these black boxes of, of data and algorithms are not necessarily inspectable or interpretable. We want our explanations, our decision makers to be to be able to explain their their decision making, to be accountable for them, to be auditable, to be able to go back and look at why decisions are being made or to be able to check the way that decisions are being made under different circumstances in order to make sure that they're being done right. Controllable and or modifiable, policy preserving, trust inspiring, and, and of course safe, which is a, a catch-all and, and nowadays for people talk about safe AI for many, many things. It isn't necessary, so, so do we always want or need all these properties? I would say maybe, maybe not, I would say maybe not. You know what, a decision-making problem that a robot makes is, is how much pressure to put on this cup so that, it can, so that it can pick it up effectively. Do we really need an explanation for, for why, why the robot chose to put this much pressure on this? this finger and this much pressure on another? Probably not. Uh, we don't need explanations for everything, but for critical things that, that affect our, us, we do need to have some sense of, of some of these properties. And at least we need to audit ourselves with respect to whether these are important when we're making decisions. So as a computer scientist, my focus is on building systems and understanding how to realize at least some of these data errata. And I don't know how to realize them all now, I think, nor do, do many of my colleagues. So how can we build AI decision-making systems? One of the schematics that people use, schemas that people use for, for talking about AI decision-making systems is that, that, that we're creating these agents, I don't like the word that much, that, that actually perceive their environment and then take action in the world. And there's a simple cycle of perception and acting, perception and acting, perception and acting. So how do we actually go about building those systems? What I'm gonna talk about is how we, we build them now or have built them historically before the age of big data, and then sort of migrate over to what we can do with data. So what we used to do was basically, we'd have some model of the environment in our head and some notion of what we wanted to build, what, what functionality we wanted, and we'd write a computer program. And that computer program would become the agent. So it would decide that if you know the, the toast is, is medium brown, then we keep on, uh, and, and the person has asked for dark brown toast and we keep on cooking it a little bit longer. If the toaster's been on for more than five minutes, you turn it off automatically and so on and so forth. Very simple controls, control loop structure. But it can be hard, to, that's a very simple scenario, but it can really be hard to enumerate all the scenarios. And so a lot of times what we try to do is we try to model things. We use mathematics of all sorts, of all sorts in order to model the environment and to model what we perceive to be our, 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 the desirable behavior of our system. So we still have this sort of conceptual model in our head, but we actually write down a model of the environment and um, some sort of a model of our desired behavior, our objective, and we use some sort of a synthesizer in order to generate a computer program that then becomes that agent that interacts in the world. And of course, there, there are many ways to build these synthesizers. One way is, is something called reactive synthesis. And again, this is for, just for those of you who, who know a little bit more about it. We might let, write out a set of logical formulae for those of you who know um, temporal logic formulae that specify the behavior of an environment and the desired behavior of the world. And we can, we can logically synthesize a strategy that under all sorts of different inputs that conform to that, the, the, the environment, 
that they will produce, they are guaranteed, correct by construction, to realize that, those objectives. And this is a, a variant of, of, of uh, Church's classic problem that was, was proposed in the 1950s for digitizing or for synthesizing digital circuits. So we provide the specification, we find the strategy that's guaranteed to realize the desired behavior. What's beautiful about this is that it's correct by construction. Every run of that program is guaranteed to, to realize the objective. And the code is modified at the specification level. You never have to go in and manipulate the code. All you do is manipulate that logical formula that you've written, and you can realize the behavior. It's realized via automa deduction, uh, uh, automated deduction or by two-player game construction. And it's one way in which we can, we can realize that, that synthesizer. Another way that we can do it, for example, is by, by using a Markov decision process. We can model the behavior of the environment as a stochastic transition process. And we can model the behavior, uh, uh, um, our desired behavior, as a Markovian reward function. Uh, our tra transition behavior talks about the probability of, of a particular state given the previous state and some action that you perform. So maybe I try to pick this up and 99% and of the time it's out, I'm actually holding it, but 1% of the time I, I mess up and it's still on the table. Um, we also have a reward function. And this, I'm going to come back to this. It's, it's basically a mapping from state to state action and successor state to some sort of a, a, often a scalar value. So how much reward, um, to, uh, 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 sorry, some number of, uh, drawn from the real numbers. So how good is it for me to, to what sort of reward am I going to get for, for performing this action in this particular state with this particular outcome? So if you think about a video game, it's very easy to, 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 um, to model the reward function. Every time I, I um, you know, eat another little cookie, if I'm a Pac-Man or eat some, or, or avoid a ghost, I may get some, some positive reward. If I, if I fall into a sinkhole, I get a negative reward. The game gives me that reward. But, but, but in many applications, the reward function actually has to be defined by us. Because until we're all rigged up with sensors and actuators that are measuring exactly our, our happiness scale and, and, and whatever else it contributes to reward, we collectively have to define what that reward function is. But again, in this sort of a setup, another synthesis setup, what we want to do is synthesize a program, or in this case, a policy, um, that maximizes the expected cumulative reward. We want to get as much reward as we can, and we define this policy that maps from states to actions or to some action distribution where we're going to take the, 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 the best one. So these, these, these programs are nice. Uh, they have some guarantees of properties. Sometimes they're we get guarantees of optimality. In the case of reactive synthesis, we get a guarantee of, of, of correctness by construction. Um, they're interpretable for the most part, I mean, by, by at least a computer scientist, and a computer scientist could probably write something on top of it because the building blocks that we're using are building blocks that are of our construction. They're things that we understand in the world from our models. They're inspectable, they're transparent, and often you can actually make, uh, you can make rules and make the system stick to those rules. You can actually constrain what the program does in order to make it follow hard rules. The other thing that we can do in our, in, in our suite of building blocks is verification. So if the synthesizer gives weak guarantees, then what we may want to do, given this program that we've constructed, is, is be able to actually uh, think of other desired behavior. We may want to be able to, to assess better guarantees 
or when they, or if, for example, there's other properties of our program that we're wanting about. We didn't stipulate in, in desired behavior that we wanted to make sure that there was coffee at the, uh, um, at, the, the um, at the meeting or that we were going to get home on time. But it may be that, that as a consequence of the other decisions we've made, that that actually falls out and that we can verify that that property, even though it was not stipulated explicitly, actually holds true of our system. And we effectively have algorithms. They, they don't work this way, but they effectively search implicitly through all runs of the program in order to check that each one of these runs of the program will actually satisfy this property that I'm, that I'm interested in doing. And that's something that's very useful for auditing of, of the behavior of systems that we're, we're constructing, because we can actually query and verify properties of those systems. But you still have to be able to stipulate those properties in a way that the program understands. And this can be problematic if you're dealing with neural networks, which we'll talk about in a minute, because, um, because those programs don't nec aren't necessarily using building blocks that are interpretable. It's also the case that the AI is only as good as the model. Remember, what we did was we had these models in our head of how the world works and a model in our head of what the desired behavior was. What, what we're going to yield with, the, with this great box that seems to do so well is only as good as those models. In particular, it's only as good as the model of the environment and of our conception of the desired behavior. If the world doesn't behave in accordance with our assumptions about the, envir the environment model, then all of our guarantees go out the window. If we said that, that when, when you flip a coin, it's always tails and sometimes it's, it, it's, it's heads, then the, the system's not behaving the way that we, we wanted it to. And we, be, we constructed our program predicated on that behavior. Similarly, if we don't fully characterize the desired behavior, then even if the environment model is correct, the decision-making system may not realize our intention. And this is one of the, the biggest problems that people have with, with constructing these systems, is actually con conceiving and articulating what, what we actually want the system, our programs to do. A long time ago when I was, um, I used to give talks to, to public school children about robotics and, and, we'd, uh, and I'd get them to, you know, tell me how to make a peanut butter sandwich. And of course the very first thing that they do would, would be to say, uh, take the bread and put the peanut butter on it. And of course, if you take that literally, what are you going to do? Take, the, take this loaf of bread and put the peanut butter on top of it. And of course, you know, it, it falls out from there. But, but, but the same problems those kids had are the problems that we have too with being able to, to, um, to, to specify what behavior we want because so much of it is steeped in, in common sense, in, in shared cultural norms and, and various other things that, that help us to communicate. So how hard is it to build models? Obviously, we're, we've built, we have systems running our nuclear power plant right now. We, we are able to send people into outer space. Clearly, we know how to build really sophisticated control systems already, you know, before this conversation even started. But what you'll notice about this is even though this, it seems fantastical, sorry, I couldn't get a good video of, of, of a, a good space, this is just a rocket. But, but what you'll see is that even though this seems fantastical that we can do this, the environment's pretty predictable. There isn't any traffic there, no pedestrians walking across the road or anything like that. So, so, and it's physics. We understand physics. And so we can, can so some models that are actually seemingly quite complex are, are actually easy to, to model. Whereas in other cases, 
It's chaos. It's very, very hard. Imagine trying to model this environment. <laughs> Sorry, that's a little bit loud. Um, it's, it's really, really hard to, to actually, it's very impressive to watch people cold out and getting in here. I don't think that this is, this is human intelligence at its, at its finest. Um, yeah, so, so it really can be challenging to build the models. And if we can't, oops, if we can't, if we can build the models, then, then we've thrown out everything. Those, all those great ideas that I told you about before are just going to be for naught. Many environments have only, are only partially known. And models need to reflect it, the, this ignorance and the systems act accordingly. So we need to recognize where we have ignorance and our systems really need to recognize that. So that's talking about models of the environment. But again, as I alluded to, we can also talk about how, we, how do we know what we want our system to do? What's the desired behavior? Um, if you don't have a good sense of the environment or its behavior is too complicated, uh, too com complex or easily conceived, then it's very hard to conceive and specify what you want to do. And of course, I'm sure you've all seen these headlines. Um, should a driverless car kill the kid or the retiree? Some problems we, we, can, we can ask ourselves, but we don't know what the right answers are. And other things we just can't even envision what the other answers are. All these ethical dilemmas that I'm sure many of you have heard of the talk, trolley car problem. Should this person change the switch so that they kill only one person instead of five? What if it's many more than five? At what point do you change your mind? These are ethical decisions. And, and it's actually interesting to ask ourselves, what can we expect our systems to do? Can we, I mean, we struggle with these problems. Are we really going to hold our systems to higher standards than we hold ourselves? Um, you know, my daughter's 16 and she's about to get her driver's license and actually, you should not be scared. She's, she's a very good, responsible kid and I'm sure she's going to be a great driver. But, but uh, you know, all she has to do is go down to, to the, the motor vehicles, write, you know, answer 20 questions about, about uh, uh, things that seem to have nothing to do with good judgment related to driving, more about, about demerit points and, various, and, and stop signs, various other good things. And they're going to give her the keys to a lethal weapon that could kill any of us. But, but, but we, do that, we do that every day and with kids that are probably a lot less, uh, um, lot less reliable than my, my, my 16 year old. So will we hold our AI to higher standards than we hold ourselves? Um, Stuart Russell said this, I think, or, or, and, and, and I've, I've made a Canadianized version of it. So there close, I, in the United States, I think 20,000 or 30,000 people die from motor vehicle accidents every year. In Canada, it's apparently 3,000 people who die from motor vehicle accidents. I think the, the number of actual injuries is, is uh, you know, order of magnitude higher. But if, if, if we build autonomous cars and we cut that number in half, if we go from 3,000 down to 1,500, we won't get 1,500 thank Uber or whoever it is who actually does it, won't get 1,500 thank you notes. They'll probably get 1,500 lawsuits. We will not, you know, we will not thank those, those people for those advances that have actually improved our safety. And, and so in some ways, we're, maybe we're holding these, the, our systems to higher standards than, than we're actually holding ourselves. Interesting question to, to contemplate. Yeah, so, so the agent alignment problem, for those of you who read in this area, the agent alignment problem is how do we create agents that behave in accordance with the user's intention? Um, and, and the problem is that if, if I specify some things that I want done, but I don't specify other things, and I've got this algorithm that's trying to optimize for the things that I told it that I wanted it to do, then what it's going to do is it's going to vary all the other parameters that I, I didn't mention 
in ways that will optimize for the things that I said that I really wanted to have happen. So if I say I want to get to the airport pronto, you know, as soon as possible, then, then maybe my autonomous car will blast through all the, the red lights, killing a whole bunch of people and, and creating mayhem in order to, to, to do exactly what I asked it to do, it did it, you know, A plus. Um, or, uh, or um, you know, I think Stuart Russell had this funny example about getting coffee, you know, getting your robot to get coffee for you at Starbucks and, and, and you know, stunning or, or, or control, uh, uh, disabling all the other people that were in its way to get to the front of the line to get, to get coffee. So, so there are all sorts of unintended um, uh, consequences that, that we, with our common sense, would never do. And the problem is that these systems do not have common sense. They do what we tell them to do. They have a model of the world that is limited to the model that, that we give them in some ways. The other, I think uh, people often allude to King Midas in this context as well, but of course King Midas asked that everything be turned to gold. And in turning everything to gold, he was very happy for about five minutes until you know, his food and, and, and loved ones and everything else turned to gold as well. And he realized that this was not exactly what he wanted. Our systems really need common sense. So the value of alignment principle is that AI systems should be designed so that their goals and behaviors can be assured to align with human values throughout their operation. And then the challenge is, how do we realize value alignment with the lack of complete and accurate models of the environment and desired system behavior? So for many people, the answer is data. So we don't have models, so we're going to use data instead. And I, I, I love this, this quote. Uh, this is Mary Leakey who said, uh, theories come and go, but fundamental, fundamental data always remains. Mm -hmm. So you know, we take data, we construct models from that data, but the, the data is, is in some way pure. But of course, and, and the, the proposal of course is that rather than build models, <coughs> we'll use data to learn how to act. Let's act in the world, observe what happens, and how much reward we get, and then figure out how to maximize that reward. Or we can learn models of the environment. Let's observe the world and try to understand how the world works. Or uh, to learn reward functions. Let's observe people and infer their intent. These are some of the ways in which people are, are proposing that we use data to, to solve this problem of not having models. Or, or at least not being able to construct models for these very, very complex systems that, that we can't, where there's no mathematical closed-form solution that we can manipulate in some systematic way. But the AI is still only as good as the data. You know, I, previously it was only as good as the model. Now it's only as good as the data and the algorithms. And good data should be uh, independent and identically distributed. It should be clean, it should be unbiased, and it should reflect all the properties to be taken into consideration in making good decisions. And so we've just turned one problem into another problem. However, we're only as good as our data now. Maybe we can't build models, maybe, maybe we can, but, we, we, uh, but we're only as good as our data. So what I want to talk about in the rest of, of this, this talk, and it's, it's not going to be too, too much longer to leave time for, 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 for questions, is to talk a little bit about reinforcement learning, which is one way of doing decision making. Uh, reinforcement learning, deep reinforcement learning, which is one way of using data and machine learning in order to, do, uh, um, to construct decision making systems. 
I want to talk a little bit about using language in that construct and in that context and then and then wrap up. So how many people are familiar with reinforcement learning? Okay. So when people talk about machine learning, they often talk about three different types of, of, of learning. Uh, supervised learning, where for example you have a bunch of images and they're all labeled, this is a cat, this is a dog, this is a pig, and, and you, 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 you use a, a neural network or some sort of deep learning, machine learning system to construct a function that maps those images into that labeled data, some sort of a discriminating function. That's supervised learning. Unsupervised learning is where you have a bunch of, of data but it's not labeled and you're trying to find regularities or clusterings in the data, groupings in the data that's, uh, that, that, that maximize similarity and, and minimize, uh, well, there are different criteria for the clusters, but, but, but that aggregate the data in some way. And then the reinforcement learning is often described as, as the cherry on top of the cake. So reinforcement learning is, is, is used to, to construct agents that act in the world through data. And the premise is the following that an agent takes an action in the world and the environment returns uh, some reward and also what the successor state is and then the agent takes that back in again. So the agent doesn't know how the world operates. It's just, you know, imagine closing your eyes and walking through the room and blindly bumping into things and sometimes you pick something up and it, and it works and sometimes you pick something up and it doesn't work. The, the, the premise is that the agent is going to explore the environment and, and, and get reward from the environment, um, positive reward and negative reward if they fall down the stairs or something else, and that over time it will learn a policy that is going to, again, maximize its, its expected cumulative reward. But of course, imagine that you were trying to figure out how uh, this room, you would, you would have to go learn forever and ever and ever and ever. You'd do a lot of different things. But, but this, this paradigm of learning together with all the computational advances has created some absolutely amazing things. And I wanted to just show you, this is something, this is, this is from um, DeepMind. So this was, you can read the text on top. So this little age, this little thing learned how, learned through experimentation and very simple signals, it learned how to navigate and, and to, to move in these different environments. So you can see what it was told. So it was incentivized from point, for going from point A to point B, some simple information about orientation and other things, but it learned this whole how to balance, how to move forward, all on its own. It's actually pretty <laughs> But and and this is just one example. These are re there's really really impressive work going on at learning from data. But but you know billions and billions and billions of experimentations of picking something up. Whoops. <laughs> that was yeah. And sometimes you know and sometimes they fail and start again. So you get all these runs, all these, I'm going to stop it, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll give Marcus the URL for YouTube and you can check <laughs> out the whole thing. Anyway, reinforcement learning, deep reinforcement learning is, is incredibly impressive and again, it's just learning from, from data. Sometimes it's done with models, sometimes it's done with weak models, sometimes it's done with no models. 
but it certainly is the case that you don't know those transition probabilities that I showed you at the beginning, and you learn it through experimentation. Of course, sometimes here, it's, it's, we have a simulator, and we have a very simple environment, and you can do a million runs over and over again, but imagine you're a robot or a car operating in a real world. You, you can't, you know, you can't knock over 15 pedestrians just to learn that that was not a good thing to do. A lot of times we can't experiment in the environment, in the real environment. If we're not going to experiment in the real environment, then we're back to the problem of building a simulator so that we can experiment in, in the lab, if you will. And now we're back to modeling the environment. So, so there's no, you know, there's no free lunch in a way. Certainly, there's things where you can you can experiment in the real world that are that are where it's safe to do so. But people are interested in issues such as safe exploration. How do I explore in an unknown environment safely? How do I how do I construct these systems when I, I can't explore in the environment? And part of the answer I think is 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 really going back to understanding where we can use models. So if you look at um, if you if you look at this uh, if you look at that that DeepMind reinforcement learning system in the context of some of our desiderata for decision making, you know a lot of and again last time when I said this maybe some of these things don't matter. A lot of the thing, a lot of these issues don't matter here. The, the system's deciding how to how to keep its balance, how to move forward, what how to how to adjust weight on its on its different limbs in order to in order to keep its balance and, and go over these the steeplechase. But but some of these other things are actually important. Like, like the ability to be able to interpret. You would never be able to take that system and look at it and understand what it was doing. If you wanted to give it one more leg or, or maybe, maybe if it broke its leg and you wanted to favor it in another way, it would have to do another million episodes to relearn how to, how to, how to walk with, with a broken leg or with the one leg that's longer than the others or with shoes on or something like that. All of these technologies are siloed and they can't be used together and there's no way to actually um, interact with them in a way so that you can actually tell them what to do. So a lot of these systems are just learning how to maximize some reward. And we're still back to this problem where we actually have to, again, stipulate what the reward is. And that's a really hard problem. So one of the things that, that, that some of the students in my, in my group have been working on is really trying to understand um, how, to, how to solve some of these value alignment problems, but also how to do solve some of these reinforcement learning problems and address some of the issues that, I, that I've, I've mentioned here. So we're using models, we're using data, and we're also using some sort of a notion of a human in the loop, where the human, not necessarily in the loop, but, but a human who's providing some sort of guidance or instructions. And that makes sense to me in the, in the sense that I, I really think that what we need to do is endow these systems with some form of common sense reasoning. How we get, um, I, we could, I could give a whole other talk along another dimension about common sense reasoning. I'm not going to do that here. I wanted to talk about this, but 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 I want to talk a little bit about some work that, that's been done by by um, uh, Rodrigo Toro Carta, who's one of my PhD students, together with Torn Klassen, who's another one of my PhD students, who's right there, uh, uh, only partially recognizable, <laughs> and uh, um, and Rick Gonzano, who is a postdoc and who's now at, at Element AI. So. One of the challenges to RL, to reinforcement learning, is sample efficiency. As I alluded to, you know, to, in order to, to, to really learn about the environment, you have to do millions and millions and millions and millions of runs. People talk about the, 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 the ethics of actually running experiments because of the power consumption that it takes. I have heard people talk about, you know, just, 
You know, we do, we're not we're now not talking about whether whether we, we get we need to get ethics approval in order to experiment on human subjects. They're talking about whether it's ethical to actually run these experiments, which consume so much energy. It's actually an interesting different dimension. But sample efficiency is a really is is an issue. Reinforcement learning agents might require billions of interactions with the environment to learn good policies. It's also the case, as, as has been the theme, that reward specification is difficult. It's hard to define reward functions for complex tasks. And it generally has to be done. Despite, you know, and again, as I said before, until we, unless we have intrinsic, we endow our, our systems with some sort of intrinsic motivation, um, we don't know. Uh, we, we have to tell them where the reward comes from. We have to tell them that, that me drinking water right now is going to be a plus 100. Excuse me. Plus 100 for me, maybe minus 10 for you, um, and, and, and so on. And, and part of the problem, too, is that these reward functions, you will remember, are Markovian. They talk about, um, about what reward I get from going from one state to the next. And yet a lot of the behaviors that we want are really non-Markovian. You know, if I did, if I went to the bank earlier today and I, I got, uh, and I, um, picked up my library book, then then I can do the following things later on. Then I can buy a coffee when, after I, I leave here with the cash that I got. But otherwise, I can't. And or if I'm uh, if I'm trained if I'm training my children to uh, um, to be good little reinforcement learning agents, they can they can open the freezer, get the the ice cream out of the freezer, serve themselves. Um, but they get no reward. They will get reward probably once they, they've served themselves and eaten the ice cream, but they get no reward from me until they put, close the ice cream, put it back in the freezer, and close the freezer door again. I don't want to give them half the reward for half of the execution. I only want to give them reward when they've executed the whole thing. It's a very non-Markovian process, a very simple one, and yet when people, you know, when my students, when actually go down to, to build these systems, they have to specify rewards as Markovian rewards. They have to say, how, what's the state and an action for which I am? What number am I going to give? And so it's really, really hard. So one of the things that we've been exploring is, is to use language. So, and it makes perfect sense. If you, a, a lot of the reinforcement learning, a lot of the machine learning systems uh, take pixels. They take perceptual images. They take, you know, you look at a picture of a screen and you imagine it as a bunch of of dots on the screen of, of different colors. And, and that's what's input, just like that's what's input in, in some ways to our perceptual systems. We, d we don't see in, in you know, uh, white shirts and blue pants, we see in, in, um, in, in, well, in, in light uh, of, of various wavelengths and we perceive that in a particular way. But, but we've, we've developed, humans have developed language over, over tens of thousands of years as an abstraction for our world in order to be able to interact in it, to operate in it, and to communicate uh, about the world with each other. And so part of what we're trying to do is use, is use language as an abstraction in order to address some of these problems. I've done a lot of work historically in what's referred to as knowledge representation, which, is, which may be familiar to some of you, but not all of you. Knowledge representation and knowledge representation languages are, are uh, a form of language, just like natural language, like English is a natural language, but, but they're designed to have to be unambiguously computer interpretable and, and to be compact and to have various other properties that, that together with some sort of a, a, a reasoning system can, can do rational reasoning, sound and complete reasoning. 
And so, so we're trying to use both natural, understand how to use natural language or knowledge representation, or even the, the language of mathematics, which is another language, in order to try to, to interact with our reinforcement learning systems. So we've done a whole bunch of interesting work in this area, and for the computer scientists in the room, uh, my students, or I would be happy to talk to you about it some other time. The thing that I thought would, might be interesting to talk to this group about is some, one of the first things that we did, which perhaps is not quite so interesting from a, a computer science perspective, but one of the things we wanted to do was, was to, to try to give advice to a reinforcement learning system. And, and if you want, you know, you can imagine you're the student building this system, and your system has to do a billion different, a billion different episodes before it, it learns how to do something. And in between, it's learning a policy, and it's getting a little bit better, and a little bit better, or a little bit worse, and a little bit better. And, and you're watching it, and you're just thinking, you know, just go over there and do this. You know, just lift up your foot a little bit more. It's really frustrating. And so, so the idea was that we wanted to understand how to share common sense knowledge with, with a reinforcement learning system. And as a precursor to that, I think we wanted to understand how would we give advice to a reinforcement learning system. And so just to, to, to and this was again work that Torin Klassen and R Rodrigo Toro did. And, and, uh, and uh, I'm gonna illustrate in terms of very simple example. This is a, a stylized version of, of a, a room and there's a little agent in the room and the agent's meant to go to this door up here. And, but, but the agent can't get through the door. The door has to be unlocked by a key. So this is for those of you who play video games. <laughs> it should be a familiar scenario. So the agent actually has to go get the key and open the door. And, and there, are these, uh, there are these nails which, which, are, which it doesn't want to step on. So the actions that this little agent can do are it can move left, move right, move up, move down. And each of those actions fails with some probability. So for, if, if, with the probability of point 0.2, I say move left, and the, and the agent actually moves right or stays where it is or moves up or moves down. There's some stochasticity. The rewards are, <coughs> excuse me, if it actually opens the door, it gets plus 1,000. If it steps on a nail, it gets minus 10. And for every step that it takes, meandering around, it, it gets charged minus 1. There's a penalty of, of minus 1. And the goal, of course, is to maximize the expected cumulative reward. So we wanted to give it some advice. And so, but, but you know, advice is different from telling it what to do. When you tell a system what to do, it has to do that. And it only gets, for example, it might, you might tell it to do something and it would only get reward if it does it, like my kids and the ice cream. I'm only gonna give them reward if they do the whole, the whole scenario. This is a little bit different because advice can be good advice or it can be bad advice. And advice in one could be good in one circumstance or bad in another. So this is just like common sense. You know, common sense is, is, is good in many scenarios, but, but it's defeasible. It's not good in all scenarios. And so what we wanted to be able to do was, was to be able to capture this notion of advice. And so two very simple examples are get the key and then go to the door. And the other piece of advice is avoid the nails. And our objective was to speed up learning if the advice was good but to make it robust to bad advice. So the idea was not to rule out possible solutions, even when advice is bad. So if we told it to do something that was just wrong, like go upstairs to exit the building, it would eventually figure out that, that it would try the advice. If it tried it, it would get a good solution quickly, and if it didn't, it, if it, didn't it would, it would uh, eventually figure out that it was bad advice and start ignoring it. So here's a video of, um, a, a big
bigger version of that that simple schema <coughs> that I showed you. And and uh, these are there are four rooms, and the agent is trying to get from from the beginning to the end. Um, for and and the advice is for every key in the map, get it, then go to the door, avoid the nails and holes, and get all the cookies. And I think the the blue things I haven't looked at this for a while actually. The blue things are holes which 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 eat you up. The brown things are cookies. Um, the little green thing is is the the person. Um, these squares down here are the doors, and uh, the gray things are the nails, and and the other things are just obstacles. I think. Tarn, did I miss anything? Uh, it's also the keys which are yellow. Oh yeah, the keys which are yellow. So they have to get the key, and then go to the door. And so what you'll see in this video is the frustrating thing that all the students see when it, without advice, and and how much more effective we are with advice. And I won't go all the way to the bottom, uh, but but the the, the pat you you can still see it doesn't learn perfectly, right? It's not taking this this perfect route, but it doesn't know it's what's in it doesn't know it's in the system. So and it goes on and on, and, and you know, spoiler alert: this guy gets to the end, and this guy just keeps on falling the holes, and and eventually it will learn because. These partic this particular, for those of you who know reinforcement learning, these this was this was tabular RL, and it is guaranteed to eventually converge to an optimal solution. Many of these things are, are guaranteed to eventually con uh, converge, but to my point at the beginning, it could take millions and millions and millions of trials before it actually figured out how to do it. So. What we could, what we determined from this was that advice can do, can improve performance. If we gave the advice, get the key and then go to the door and avoid the nails, using the advice. Uh, this is on the on the y-axis is the normalized reward up to one, so it goes up to one, and um, and here is the number of, of episodes or, or trials that were, were required. So it very with this advice, it very quickly. Uh, gets asymptotically close to, to the optimal solution. Whereas the, the system that used no advice was had very poor performance for a long time and then and then eventually realized optimality. But it took this much time, these many episodes in order to do it. So obviously, you know, optimality is something great and, and mathematicians love optimality or close guarantee, but a lot of times we don't, you know, you want to learn something pretty good pretty fast is 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 just fine. So another question we asked was how what happens if we give it less uh, we give it less advice? So less complete advice is also useful. Again, here the advice was get the key and then go to the door. And and you can see not quite as good performance, but still much better than the, the other solution, which of course was the same as on the, the page before with no advice. Just get the key, it performed quite poorly initially, but then eventually still did better than the, the no advice system. Um, the, the shading in here is, is the variance in, in the behavior. And then finally, what happened when we gave it uh, bad advice? Bad advice was go to every nail. So judge, 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 minus 10, minus 10, minus 10, minus 10. Um, it started off by following the advice dutifully and, and was penalized for, for, for being for good behavior, um, for being compliant. And then it, pretty, it soon realized that it should not follow that advice and again, it converged to the optimal right around the same the same time as the system that used no advice. So this showed that 
it was again robust to advice. So that's about all I wanted to say for today. I think that's, that's enough of, of your time. Um, the question I asked was, how do we ensure our AI will do the right thing? And uh, um, I proposed some desiderata, again, drawing on, on a lot of, of information in the literature. We didn't talk about what, what all these things mean in detail, but, but uh, I think some of the other speakers have talked about that as well. Um, my, my, my parting comment in all of this is, is proceed with caution and deploy common sense. I think our systems need common sense, um, but until and, and, and how we learn that common sense and endow them with that common sense is, is an open question right now. I think it, it requires uh, um, data and models and humans in the loop and, and a lot of clever people working on understanding what it really means to, to do the right thing. So just thanks to my students and postdocs as always who make my life so wonderful, where are they? And, and, uh, and in particular to Rodrigo and Tuan and, 